Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. On tonight's programme, Monday last was the Feast of the Epiphany, the twelfth and final day of Christmas known in Ireland as Nolig the Mon, or Women's Christmas, or Little Christmas. Well, later we'll find out some of the traditions associated with the day and hear more about personal epiphanies and how to spot them. But first, what is the influence of religion and religious belief in the current tensions in the Middle East? My first guests this evening have particular insight. Professor Ruja Fazeli is a lecturer in Islamic civilizations at Trinity College Dublin, and Dr. Joel Hanasek has recently completed a PhD on US-Iran relations in the School of Religion at Trinity. You're both welcome to The Leap of Faith. Joel, can I begin with you? The relationship between the United States and Iran, it's actually quite an old one. It is, it is, and I think it's older than many people realize. Um, Oftentimes, when we talk about the US and Iran, uh, that timeline starts in many minds, I know in many American minds from 1979. But uh, if we go back a little bit further, uh, we can talk about Mossadegh and the coup in the 50s, the 1950s. But uh, one of the things that uh, listeners may be interested in is the fact that there have been Americans in Iran since the 1830s. Uh, So these were missionaries. There were uh, congregational missionaries who were, in fact, the first Americans to step foot in Iran. And from the 1830s up until the 1870s, they mediated a lot of the cultural uh, exchange between the two countries. So not only were they there to preach the word of God, but they became involved in politics too. To a certain extent, they did in the sense that they were also uh, building schools uh, and establishing places for medical care and hospitals. So to that degree, they were engaging in varying degrees of substance with the ruling Qajar dynasty and also with with local uh, populations from the Armenians to the Nestorian Christian population. And Roger, for you as somebody born in the country, were you aware of the American influence permeating through your history? Well, um, not when I was uh, in Iran. Mm. Uh, We left Iran when I was 12, we came to Ireland, and not obviously through my undergraduate studies here, Mm. uh, but but later on, kind of through uh, my own work, I'm uh, assistant professor in Islamic civilization um, at Trinity, so we're in the Department of Near Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, So through that kind of academic Mm. study, uh, yes, uh, but not previously. It's it's something that I think you need to be uh, doing research in the area to be aware of, but some that perhaps uh, more of the public should know about. And Joel, this is uh, obviously your area of interest is that, that you would often refer to this as being forgotten, a forgotten history. I, I think to a certain extent, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way in which that history is, um, it has been forgotten uh, within the US in particular. The history, I think, uh, as, as Ruja says, it's, it's, and I don't want to overstate the impact of these, these small groups of people, but to a degree, you have individuals like Samuel Jordan, who would have uh, been the head of Albors College, um, which was a very significant educational institution, particularly for an elite strata within Iranian society leading up to the Iran's constitutional revolution. So there's a, a boulevard in Tehran, which is still referred to as Jordan Boulevard, for instance. But those uh, little pieces, I think, aren't remembered in the same way within the U.S. And I think that recovering parts of that history could be helpful in terms of establishing or recovering some stronger relationships between the two countries. There was a time when when that relationship was much healthier. So, Ruja, how do we get to the situation where we are today, where, you know, at the beginning of the week, we were looking at the possibility, at least we we believed, of World War Three? It's um, it's a very complex uh, question uh, with with a very 
I suppose, an answer that that uh, would would take a long time. We could have a huge discussion about this because you really have to take uh, the historical contextualization into consideration answering this kind of how even Middle East was created, the different identities uh, within kind of Iranian nationalism, the whole Shia Sunni uh, divide and and also identities there, uh, how there are so many proxy wars ongoing uh, and how how kind of history of colonialism uh, had an impact uh, on the region and uh, and it still does in different ways. Mm. Can you give us a pen picture then, if you would, of the religious influences that are, are, are influencing the thinking that's currently happening? It's religious influences in, in many ways. Uh, so it's important to know about uh, the, the Shia identity and where it came from. Um, and part of it is uh, after the death of Prophet Muhammad uh, and the succession and uh, the Shias wanting Ali ibn Abi Talib to be the very first Khalif. He ended up being the fourth Khalif. This is summarizing it. Mm. And, uh, and then later on during the Umayyad dynasty, uh, his uh, son Hussein, his second son Hussein was slayed uh, by Yazid. Um, the Umayyad Khalif, and uh, and this killing was was quite violent in in many ways, or at least by the way the the Shia scholars have depicted it, and and this violence, this narration, these memories of uh, how uh, the the Shias were victimized through throughout history from the very start, um, and uh, with with kind of this clear division around the death of Hussein. Is, is, is replayed. So during the Iran and Iraq war, you had these narratives of going to Karbala. So you're going to free Karbala. Um, and now as well, that, that narrative is there because you have the US present, you have the foreign presence in Karbala, and Karbala is a Shia site. So, so we want our fighters there to go to liberate. Uh, Karbala, uh, and often uh, this narrative is we are going to go through Jerusalem, but that's that's another discussion all by itself. And that's part of this uh, religious map that you're drawing out for us, which is where you have uh, Sunni Shia, you have um, Israel with the Jewish faith, you've the Christian faith uh, present as well, yes. and all of this is leading to the tensions that we're currently living through. Um, yes, and, and but but you know, but to reduce it to say this is a conflict of, of fate is is not uh, right either. It's not correct uh, because uh, and that's why I I thought kind of explanation of of the Iranian national identity by itself shows how complex uh, the whole thing is. Um, like I often say uh, to to my my class, I teach a, a course on Islamic civilization. Uh, that when I was growing up in Iran, I never thought of myself as Shia. Mm. I didn't like you were Muslim. You knew you were brought up Muslim. Uh, it was later on uh, that you started getting questions of, "Oh, you're Muslim? Are you Shia or Sunni?" Um, so this dichotomy has become much sharper uh, in the last two, three decades than it was previous to that. What's your insight into the uh, appearance of the evangelical Christians uh, to to the story now in America? Um, well, uh, in some ways, I, I mean. Uh, Recalling what I was uh, was saying in terms of the advent of U.S.-Iran relations, this is not a, a, a sudden appearance, but in fact the the continuation of an older story, uh, which somehow dropped uh, below the the radar for a bit. Um, in general, uh, there is a, a fairly proud tradition in the U.S. of separating religion and politics, which unfortunately seems to have um, been forgotten, even rhetorically. Uh, 
currently. So it would be uh, wonderful to see aspects of that recovered. But the fact of the matter is that these these two things have always jostled up against each other in, in uh, deeply awkward and sometimes uncomfortable ways uh, with religion influencing mm-hmm. national policy in the U.S. So this is, I mean, these these notes are um, are certainly part of the U.S. relationship with Iran. Well, I, I can speak more around uh, the same question in Iran uh, of um, religious identity and uh, um, and and how that has been used uh, in in even in recent uh, days to try to unify um, a quite divided country. Um, so I do, um, you, you probably saw uh, the uh, funeral uh, commemoration of Soleimani in different cities in Iran, and millions of people uh, turned turned out uh, for these. And um, so a lot of media are talking about this unification, and I think it's important to go back to this question of nationalism laced with religious rhetoric in Iran, um, and and how uh, that has been used uh, to try at least for. Uh, short period of time to try to unite uh, a very divided country as as um, you know we saw end of 2019 thousands of Iranian took to the streets to protest um, uh, to show that they're very very unhappy with the Iranian state mm-hmm. um, and the Iranian state very very quickly suppressed them and actually uh, the, the suppression came very much from Sepai Pastaran uh, the Islamic uh, Revolutionary uh, Guard Corp who um, uh, the, the, the uh, Soleimani was one of the one of the heads uh, of the Al Quds branch, which was part of Sepa, which operated outside Iranian borders, and uh, more than thousand people were killed. Seven thousand people uh, are in prison. We don't hear about them, uh, and and this use of nationalist uh, religious rhetoric is actually helping the Iranian state to kind of cover up. Because people are not talking about this, the international media is is not um, interested uh, in this right now. Uh, there is a family uh, of one of the people who was killed, Puya Bakhtiari, a young man who was killed during these protests, and they were planning to commemorate his 40th day uh, of of the 40th day of his death. Um, and this was 26th of December. They were arrested, and there is no news from them. There is no news from these 7,000 people who are in prison. And these are people who were protesting, but we also have environmentalists, we have lawyers, we have human rights defenders, labor activists, women's rights activists, dervishes, Sufis, Baha'is, and uh, women who were protesting uh, compulsory hijab. And we are hearing very little about this. And this is one one of uh, the things I fear, but I feel should be highlighted, um, is, you know, we, we should criticize uh, the U.S. policy, uh, no, no doubt. But we shouldn't also forget about uh, how repressive the Iranian regime is as well. And, and a lot of this comes in the name of religion, in the name of a very specific interpretation of the Shia Asna'ashari mm. um, tradition uh, in Iran. I should let our listeners in on a little extra piece of information which we haven't shared with you so far is that our both our guests this evening know each other quite well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fact, husband and wife. Uh, Joel, for you, the, the work that you were involved with uh, got, that got you interested in this. As, as with so many things, there's, there's, um, there was a, a professional interest, but um, meeting Ruja did, did, did change the trajectory of my, my professional life as well. Um, so I... Uh, 
had worked as um, the representative for the Presbyterian Church USA um, uh, at the United Nations uh, doing work on humanitarian affairs and human rights, uh, particularly in uh, New York. And in the course of that time, actually met Ruja at a minority rights conference in, in Galway, um, which I would say certainly made me more interested. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, this was yeah. 15 years ago yeah. at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what I was fascinated about was the informed conversation between you. Um, <laughs> I, I'll ask you both, I suppose, finally then as to what you see happening next. And is there a role for religion in solving this crisis? So it's it's very difficult uh, to know uh, what's going to happen uh, with uh, you know with the Ayatollahs in one side, Trump on the other, uh, but for sure there is a still conflict in the region, and um, I I believe um, strongly in dialogue, um, and I do think um, that religious leaders, religious authorities in the region uh, can really uh, foster this this dialogue. Um, especially, you know, between the Shia, the Sunnis, and um, the the division, the kind of the sharper divisions that that we see, whether that's uh, that's very much something that that is constructed in the last few years or not. It's something that needs to be talked about because you do have kind of the anti-Sunni uh, sentiments within. Iran and uh, other Shia communities, and then you have the anti-Shia sentiments. For example, uh, example in uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, and and definitely having uh, conversations, dialogues around that at high level uh, is important. And you always need the faith leaders to be present. Religion uh, can often be part of the problem. Uh, hopefully, it can oftentimes be be helpful as well. I would just go back to. To the historical example, um, there was a point at which some of these missionaries from the U.S. Uh, were steadfast, I would say, in their their commitment to um, to Iranians as as well as Armenians, particularly during the genocide in World War One. So I w- would just say that recovering the legacy um, of um, of religion in, in, in a positive way, uh, particularly as it's been expressed and, and navigated through. Uh, U.S.-Iran relationships is is quite possible, but it uh, will take work. Unfortunately, I think the balance has swung towards uh, the end uh, of zealotry as opposed to a place of uh, relationship, uh, mutual exchange, and uh, places where individuals are willing to be vulnerable enough uh, in their religious identity to be changed personally, even as they continue to practice and articulate their faith in a, a new way, uh, not just against the other, but with the other. Dr. Joel Hanasek and Dr. Ruja Fazeli, thank you both for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Michael, for having us. Thanks very much for having us on. Next this evening, have you ever had a, a moment of acute awareness, insight or even an epiphany? Last Monday was the Feast of the Epiphany, Nalignaman, or Little Christmas. And to find out more, joining me now is Reverend Professor Thomas Casey, Dean of the Faculty of Philosophy in Maynooth. Father Casey, welcome to the Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. What is the Epiphany? Well, the Epiphany is that moment when up till, up till then, you know, Jesus has been just revealed to the Jewish people. It's local, if you like, national, and now it becomes universal when these wise men come from a far distance and discover the king of, of all creation. 
And there's a whole lot of layers to it. For example, there's the star they follow. There's been a debate of whether it was a comet or whether it was a planet Jupiter or whether it, it happened at all. Yeah, but I think I, I like to think of the star. I like to relate it to our own stars, our own guides, our own intuition, the sparks that lead us towards something meaningful in life. So mm. I think that's really to connect it to our own experience. So the significance of the Feast of the Epiphany for for Christians and for Catholics is that this is uh, not just another prophet, this is the chosen one. Yes. And also it's interesting, the word Epiphany comes from the Greek. It it means um, something that's striking in its appearance, a revelation, a moment that really hits you and grabs you. Mm. And I like that idea because I think that's something that happens in all of our lives in different small ways and big ways, in abrupt ways and in gradual ways. And if we can get in touch with those moments, that can really transform our lives. Now, you wrote recently about the concept of people having their own personal epiphany and that it doesn't have to happen at an old age. It can actually happen quite young. Yeah, there's there's an amazing example of the probably arguably the best cellist of all time, Jacqueline mm. Dupre. Yeah. Uh, and she was born in Oxford. And when she was just four years of age, she climbed on the ironing board. She was listening to radio. I think it was a BBC children's program. And nothing really struck her until she heard a particular instrument. And she said to her mother, what's that? And her mother said, that's the cello. And she says, I want that. And it was at that moment that she discovered this instrument. Actually, the funny thing about the cello is it's, I think of all instruments, is the one most like the human voice mm. in terms of its sound and range. And so she became a great cellist. Uh, sadly, then she got multiple sclerosis when she was 28, ha- had to stop performing. But that uh, was the epiphany moment of her life at that age of four. I wanted to dig in a little bit to your insight um, from philosophy as well as to what's happening in the human mind when we get this moment or this flash. Is it a singular flash or is it a, a, an awareness that we get that something must be done? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, the in, in Buddhism, they talk about uh, Satori, this moment of awakening, of comprehension, of understanding. The Uh, French Carmelite Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection he's an interesting example because he he had this moment of awakening this moment of 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 seeing something in in a very ordinary everyday experience and it was just it was a time of year like this really the depths of winter and he was looking at this leafless tree he was only 18 years of age it was before he became a Carmelite and as he looked at this leafless tree bereft of its green, he uh, suddenly struck him, well, look, in spring, mm. things are going to change. This is going to be have foliage and leaves and um, birds are going to be singing and so on. And it struck him, too, that his own sense of his heart being shriveled up and dried up, this wasn't the full story and that he also could recover greenness. So from that experience, he had a sense, gosh, God is at work in creation, and not just in trees, but in me. And God is present in all things. He's giving life. And so that's out of that drew something which he calls the practice of the presence of God, this permanent sense of awakening, of Mm. being aware that there's something that behind the visible, there's the invisible, that there's 
at the heart of the ordinary, there's something extraordinary unfolding. I'm fascinated by the idea that, you know, that you mentioned, for example, in Jacqueline Dupre, and, and, you know, we've all met people who said, you know, at the age of five, I wanted to be a pilot or I wanted to work in doing something and I, and I had a, a, an idea towards it. But there may also be epiphanies that people have, which is that they're doing the wrong thing, that they need to change. What is, where does that enlightenment come from? Well, there's an interesting example of that now that you mentioned it. Martin Buber, who Jewish philosopher and sage, when he was three years of age, his parents separated, the marriage broke up. His mother went to live elsewhere. He was taken to his grandparents' house to live there. And like a little child, every day he'd be saying, like, when's mom coming home? And there was no sign of his mother. And one day he was standing on the balcony of this house of his grandparents with a girl who was several years older than he was. And suddenly she said, look, she's never coming back. And those words really hit him. And he coined a new word in German, actually, as a result, a, a word that meant mismeeting. Uh, usually for meeting, you can say begegnung. But he had this word, vergegnung, mismeeting, for the lack of meeting, for the lack of true encounter. And as a result of that negative experience, he said his whole interest in dialogue, in interpersonal relationships, which became the core concern of his whole life and thought, he developed a huge philosophy of dialogue. He said it had its origin at that moment on the balcony. Well, we very often hear the phrase, the unanswered prayer, and the person who will have had a lifelong desire to do something, and it, they don't achieve it. They don't get that epiphany. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, the meaning of life is a life with meaning, and you have to find the meaning. Someone said, if you can find a why for life, you can bear any how. Life is happening to us all the time. It's going on. And there's so many moments that we, like, for example, so many times in the last few weeks and I've woken up and looked out the window at the sky. That's uh, touched me deeply just mm. the, because it's a different sky every time. There's uh, different patterns in the clouds, the way the sun clouds weave in with each other and, you know, the blueness, the grayness, all that. So. Those moments can, it's just like Brother Lawrence, that moment of a mm. tree, how, how big an impact it had. But he didn't have to see that. What it sounds like you're saying as well is, is that for the person to benefit from an idea that comes into their head, that they have to be reasonably present to it and present to themselves. Yes. Isn't that the wisdom that you find in so many different faiths uh, to live in the present moment, the sacrament of the present moment, to be aware because what else have we got but this present moment? The past is gone, the future is yet to come. And, but to live fully in the present, to plumb the depths of it, to mine this gold field is something that you know, we, we, we lose so often through anxieties about what did happen and what will happen. But isn't it marvelous if we, if we can actually inhabit the present in its fullness? Reverend Thomas Casey, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Finally this evening, let's stay with the topic of Little Christmas for just a moment longer. Joining me on the line from Ballina and County Mayo this evening is Dr Sinead McCool. Sinead is an Irish historian, author, historical and picture researcher and exhibition curator. Sinead, welcome to the programme. There's some fascinating folklore associated with January the 6th in Ireland, as well as a spiritual perspective. Yeah, sure. Hello, how are you? Um, just to fill you in there on 
on the um, idea of Nolignamon. I suppose when you have, you look at it in Ireland, there is the link back to ancient Ireland and women being at the centre. And there are some stories related to the fact that it is a, a pagan festival. But I suppose if you look at it from across Europe, um, it's only Ireland that we have this idea of Nolignamon, although I did come across something that links the same tradition in, in Puerto Rico. So you wonder about an Ireland where where it comes from. Um, and the idea of the tradition of people visiting from house to house was really strong. And then this particular night, what people talk about is that they did the clearing away of all of the um, the Christmas decorations. Now, in a lot of the cottages, they wouldn't have had Christmas trees. Or they, what they would have decorated their houses with would have been with holly. And the, in some places, they took down the holly and they burnt it. But... What we know about the the Nolignamon in particular is the superstitious element that comes through um, in all of the traditions. The idea being that the women, you know, didn't do the cooking on the night or that they went out and they traveled and they went from house to house telling stories. And there was only women involved in, in those gatherings. And the idea that it was 12 days of Christmas, that has a basis, of course, in traditions all over Europe. But in Ireland, it, it the idea was that while in other places they may have made cakes and traditional cakes at that time, the, the, the story is that Irish people sort of complained because it was only the, the tail end of things. And in some cases, they, they, you know, they used up the last of the Christmas cake. Mm. But when they went to different houses, they used to bring sort of presents and gifts. And they'd be all small things, you know, like, like sort of a, a metal, sort of, a, you know, the, the last of, of sort of maybe baking or cooking. But um, we don't associate it with a particular um, item of, of food particularly. Now, there's often a good practical reason behind a lot of folklore, but there's also a rather macabre idea that in some parts of the country that foretold of death in the year. Oh, yeah, well, that's to do with the candles. They, there's, um, there's traditions that there were 12 candles. Now, in some cases, you find that they lit reeds. And another story that was um, collected by Dr. Marion McGarry, and this is from the west of Ireland, is that there was a, a sort of a mud cake and that each of the candles were put in to that, 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 that mud, and they were then lit by various people. So 12 separate people would light the candle. And this is a sort of macabre bit to do with the sort of the idea of almost like souls and the passing and the light as being, you know, the light of life and then the passage into death was that the person whose candle went out first was going to be the first to die. Now, that's one of the stories told about that. But then, of course, there's the other stories that we always associate with Christmas in the West of Ireland, which is the welcoming light, the, the candles that were put in each of the windows to welcome the strangers to the houses. That, of course, was followed through with Mary Robinson when she went to Oris and Uthron with the light in the window, the idea of welcoming people home. So so you hear different stories in relation to that. But but I suppose what it is, is that if it does trace back to pagan rituals, you could sort of see the way that, that it translates into um, different eras, and uh, particularly in a period before um, electrification, where, where people were always telling ghost stories, and there was this, this total <laughs> link between you know the, the, the ghosts of the past and the people of the present. The ability of a good yarn. Now, we all know of the one of mm. Christmas Eve of the animals supposedly taking on human voices, but there were also one or two ideas about um, water and, and taking on unusual properties as well on, on Epiphany. Well, there is a story told about about um, wells and you know, turning into wine, but the one that um, is probably sort of more common is the idea that you wash the floor the night um, 
before um, and before you went to bed, you left um, the bucket of water there, but you didn't actually ever use that water. So the idea maybe that that was catching spirits or catching bad things, because in other places there were a lot of um, traditions for blessing the children or um, in one place I think it was herring that they used to put the oil of the herring put on the eyes of the children to prevent diseases for the following year. So there was a lot of idea of cleansing. So the idea of, of, of you know, clearing away the, the, the sort of Christmas decorations is one thing, but it's also clearing out the old and into the new year. Dr. Sinead McCool, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you indeed. And that's our programme for this week. Our front producer, Sheila Callan, and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.